Therapy for Real Life podcast translates therapy concepts into actionable self-care strategies for everyday use. I'm your host, Anna Lindbergh Cedar, a burnout prevention therapist. Listeners know that healthy relationships are essential to effective burnout prevention and self-care, which is why I'm happy to talk with Martha Gopi on the show today. Martha Gopi is a marriage and family therapist, educator, supervisor, and certified sex therapist who specializes in working at the intersection of sex and relational issues. She recently published the book Polyamory, a clinical toolkit for therapists and their clients. I very much enjoyed reading her new book because she does an excellent job translating the skills that you would learn in therapy to use in everyday life, just like we do on the show. Martha, thank you for coming on the show today. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Anna. Martha, tell me if you would about the clinical toolkit and why you decided to write a book about polyamory. That's a big question. Um, I, and it's a big book too. I wrote it because uh, I train therapists and I am a therapist. And I kept having clients tell me that they had a hard time finding a therapist that could really help them with their polyamorous relationship. And I really want to be able to help. And there are only so many clients I can personally see myself. So I wanted to be able to help people who can't find a therapist by making a really serious self-help manual. And I wanted to help therapists who want to get better at this by creating a really serious training manual. So, and since I talked to my clients as exactly the same as I talked to my um, therapists that I consult for and teach, I didn't see why I needed to create an artificial barrier or some kind of a gateway or something. It just seemed to me like everybody could just read the same book. Uh, since I say the same thing to everybody, it's all my voice. And I think um, most of the feedback I've gotten is that it's pretty readable. What was your experience of reading it? I love that part of the book. Listeners, uh, you know, it's a very self-selecting audience for folks coming to this show because this is an explainer podcast and it does the same thing. I've received feedback that a lot of folks are grad students practicing the skills for the first time, folks going to therapy and trying to study ahead. Therapy is very expensive. So if you can practice any of this on your own, that self-help style is very helpful. And I really liked that part of your, your book. I made it all the way through, but I'm going to definitely take the time and go back and treat it kind of like an encyclopedia because there's a lot of um, really good skills in there that you'd actually want to take your time with. And you do us all at a service and include a lot of worksheets at the end so that people, people can get really practical right away. They don't have to read all of it before they can just dive in. They can, they can pick and choose. I love that. I love that part of your book. That's wonderful. That's exactly what I was aiming for was to really be able to serve anybody who reads it. And I also don't think it's just applicable to polyamory. Incidentally, I think it's applicable to anybody who's interested in strengthening their relational capacity. Mm -hmm. And so that could be a relationship with your family of origin or your relationship with your coworkers, or it could be an intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciate that. And just talking about numbers, you in the book mentioned that about four to five percent of folks are currently engaged in consensual non-monogamy, and about 20 percent of folks have tried it. 
And then that those are different numbers if then thinking about infidelity and how frequent that is as well. And so when we look at folks who are trained <clears throat> to work with folks in um, alternative relationship structures and the number of folks um, trained to deal with that in therapy, it's so widely underserved. And as you point out, marginalized population. So it's underrepresented in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I also wrote the book because it didn't exist already. You know, I've probably read almost everything that's been published about polyamory. And that's a sad statement in and of itself. <laughs> it shouldn't be that easy to knock off that reading list. Um, that's actually not, that's something that I hear uh, not infrequently from clients. They'll say, I've read everything too. You know, I read the top four or five books and here's where it's gotten me so far. So we need more. Exactly. Right. With some actual to-do stuff, like how do I actually do this thing? How do I start to really think about this thing? How do I begin to operationalize this and apply it mm -hmm. in my life and in my relationship? And how do I apply it when I'm under stress or feeling triggered or upset uh, instead of when I'm at my best? Well, in terms of operationalizing it, could we start with some terms? I'm sure some folks are listening are already in polyamorous relationships. Some folks are just kind of hearing about it for the first time. Could I rapid fire throw out some terms to you and ask you to define them for our audience or, or describe them as best you can? Sure, but with a caveat that different people define these terms different ways. So. Oh. If I had a client sitting in front of me, I would probably ask them to tell me what they meant by that and how it lives out in their life. I would not memorize a glossary and then assume that I knew anything about any individual's actual situation. So when I say a definition, I just mean, this is how I think about it, mm -hmm. but I have no idea how you think about it. And everybody thinks about it differently because this is an evolution, a cultural evolution, really. And it's evolving pretty quickly. Well, it's a very good therapist skill and very good skill in cultural hum humility to adapt and personalize that to a person. I love that. Well, what about consensual non-monogamy? Is that the same as having an open relationship? See, these are more complicated questions than you might think. I would say, the way that I use these terms, an umbrella term would be consensual non-monogamy, which I use pretty much interchangeably with ethical non-monogamy. And all of that encompasses some form of open where everybody involved is consenting. After that, there are further subdivisions. Polyamory presupposes that there's a romantic attachment, that there's some sort of romance involved, uh, usually sexual as well, but not always. Asexual people can be polyamorous or be in an open relationship, certainly. Um, I think usually just open relationship as opposed to polyamorous relationship. I think open usually refers to uh, something that doesn't involve romance. But obviously, what could go wrong? You know, one often morphs into the other because feelings happen uh, unpredictably. Mm -hmm. So you might start out with a consensually open relationship, meaning everybody involved agrees and there's not an assumption of romance. 
feelings develop, and then you have to rediscuss because it turns out that what you're experiencing is something more like polyamory because there is romance involved or there is a love kind of feeling involved. And then that's a different form of relationship. And that's what I mean when I say polyamory. Mm-hmm. Thank you. What about polycule? That's a group of people who are connected by polyamorous relationship. So uh, some people in the polycule might not even know each other, um, but uh, connections connected to connections, connected to connections, like the the web um, of connections that we all got to see on the L word, if you um, got to see that. Definitely. And you say that's used interchangeably, usually with the word pod, which reminds me of how early on in the pandemic, a lot of our, you know, uh, public health pamphlets that were coming out and uh, research that we had to draw on were based on pods and consensual um, non-monogamy. And and we already know a great deal about how to structure pods to keep folks safe. So now... um, that's an example of how we've generalized that form of consent that has historically lived very actively in the polyamorous community, having clear, really clear consent and pot defined pods. Yes. Uh, and we were a little underprepared for that as a culture in general, I would say. Um, mostly our sort of safer sex discussions are with intimate partners, not with neighbors or our children's playmates parents. So Mm -hmm. to be able to have that level of consent and disclosure and um, deep discussion about risk tolerance and all that, most people are not really prepared to do that, Mm -hmm. which is actually kind of an illustration of why sometimes polyamory can be just darn challenging, you know, why sometimes Mm -hmm. therapists can be very helpful. What about relationship anarchy? That's a hard one to define because um, most people who define themselves, self-define as RA or uh, relationship anarchists, I think define it a little differently from one another. So I I would just say that it's a form of being in an open relationship that doesn't involve a hierarchy. So one partner is not more important or needs taking precedence over another partner's. And I'll leave it at that. You would have to ask the RA person what they mean. Mm -hmm. And this shows how diverse that community is because folks might have a hierarchical relationship or a non-hierarchical relationship. And that's a a specific form of consent that you would talk about. Yeah. And uh, there are still... I think most polyamorous relationships, I don't think there's super recent research about this, but I think it's still true that most do have a hierarchical structure of some sort and RA doesn't, but there's also non-hierarchical polyamory where there isn't necessarily somebody who would self-define as RA. So Mm -hmm. it's another one of those terms that, that I think that one is the most highly personal one of the whole list Mm -hmm. in my experience. Could you share some examples of what would come with that hierarchy? What considerations would would be part of that? Yeah, like a lot of people have what I would describe as a primary secondary structure to their relationship. And I think that is because a lot of people come to polyamory from a monogamous connection. So if you're, for instance, in a monogamous dyad, a marital situation, whether or not you're actually married, Um, and then you decide to open your relationship, you have a pre-existing 
monogamously committed dyad to people. And then they are stretching to restructure things and to find a sense of emotional safety with multiple romantic connections and sexual connections usually. And one way that people move into that and create some boundaries or guidelines that help promote a feeling of emotional safety is to say, for instance, it's okay with me if you have another partner, but ultimately I need to know that I come first in your mind. And that confers a sense of emotional safety sometimes. Uh, It also creates difficulty sometimes. And there are people who don't believe in it. And that's where we have non-hierarchical polyamory. And so that would be something where um, the person on the other end of the conversation that I just kind of role-played might say, I can understand that that might feel good to you, but I don't believe in a hierarchy between partners. I want to set up a situation where I listen to what each of my partners thinks and feels and desires. And then I make my own decision based on my own good judgment. And I wonder if you would be willing to trust my judgment and decision-making capacity and my ability to hear what's important to you and make a good decision without having to impose a rule that in a, you know, arm wrestling match, you will come first. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if we can structure this in a way that doesn't involve the arm wrestling match at all. And we're seeing that uh, some of these terms are overlapping or, you know, not mutually exclusive. What about solo polyamory? Solo polyamory, I think, overlaps with RA. Um, And I also think that my description of non-hierarchy just described a solo polyamorist. Um, But it might be, I think most often somebody who's not in a committed dyad um, and who thinks of themselves essentially as single Uh, with multiple partners. But again, um, the more I define something, the more I'll get it wrong for a lot of people. So yeah, you'll have to ask the individual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As we talk through terms and your book has a, a longer glossary of really helpful terms to help people get get started and understand the many choices and forms of consent that show up in this conversation. It's really hard for folks to see that experience represented. If you tell me, I think it's becoming a little bit more common in pop culture. There are a little bit more diverse representations of what it means to have an open or uh, consensually non-monogamous relationship. Um, Maybe you could share some more personal, um, you know, examples that you've seen just as a therapist or in the community, um, how different it can look when you talk about consensual non-monogamy. It might be helpful for folks to hear some, not, you know, um, breaking anyone's confidentiality, but just some different kinds of scenarios that folks might um, experience. Absolutely. One of the things I did in my book was put personal stories in from people who are in working polyamorous relationships, but that have come through some struggles. Because I think my big message in the book is it can work. Uh, And 
it's funny to write like a 450 page book to just say it can work, but it kind of shows you how much our culture doesn't believe it can work, that it took me that many words to talk about it um, without being all that redundant either, I don't think. Uh, but, you know, it really is a diverse bunch and there's not, there's not a template for you need to get into it in this manner and then it will work. People come to polyamory through infidelity, for instance, and have a wake up moment where they realize, oh, I didn't really know polyamory existed. All I knew was that I wasn't a good fit for monogamy. And the only way I knew how to do not monogamous was infidelity. And then when the person learns that there's such a thing as an ethical consensual way to have more than one partner, they're like, well, sign me up because I don't like the lies and deception. That's not me. And that's not who I want to be. But I also don't want just one um, partner for the rest of my life. So that's a very common thing that I see is uh, that morphing from infidelity to non-monogamy. And I really think it's because as a culture, it's so marginalized and not discussed. Most kids don't get raised knowing that, well, you could consensually have more than one partner and you don't have to have that choice point. I have a romantic interest in this other person. Now I have to choose. That's our cultural trope. As soon as you have interest in two people at a time, now you have to choose between them. Mm -hmm. So that's very common. And there are some personal stories in my book about that. Um, I've worked with people who are Christian. I've worked with people who are pretty fundamentalistly Christian and who are in open relationships. I've worked with lots of um, very, very um, non-religious people who are in polyamorous relationships, but I think it would be easy to assume that it's not possible to have um, a Christian framework for relationship and also be polyamorous. I'd like to debunk that. It obviously is possible mm -hmm. because I know people who do it. So, mm -hmm. uh, and then I know people who have been in very long-term polyamorous relationships. I know lots of people who are in monopolyam relationships where one partner identifies as monogamous and the other identifies as polyamorous. So one partner has other partners and the other one doesn't. And everybody's happy. That's one of the things that I've read lots of times that's not possible or that's doomed to fail. It's like, well, that's abundantly not true mm -hmm. because I have seen it work lots of times and lots and lots of my clients have made it work. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody, but not everybody's made monogamy work either. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's interesting. I'm hearing a, a little tension of the folks that we talk to as therapists are often going through something. They're looking for support and the problems that you're describing are not often exclusive to polyamory and fidelity or boundary crossings or how to live your life, that shared philosophy. And this is one way that those broader tensions can, can show up. And some of the successful, happy-go-lucky. We don't need a couples therapist right now because it's not in crisis, not as much of that prevention skill. Maybe you come for, for fun or to get some skills out of it, but they might be happily existing outside of that therapy, that therapy room. Right. That's right. And I think that uniquely positioned me to write this book 
because I know a lot of people who are in open relationships. And as a therapist, I've helped a lot of people who are in open relationships and who needed help. So I've seen it not working and I've seen it working and not needing a therapist. And most therapists have only seen one of those categories, right? If you're going to make judgments about relationships based on who comes to your therapy office, you're going to get it wrong because those are people who need help. And that's true of monogamous relationships, polyamorous relationships, and any other kind of relationship. Your kind of a plumb line for what's normal can't be the people who came to you for help. Right. As a therapist, what what uh, clinical frameworks or therapy approaches guided you or or help you uh, guide uh, your work with folks navigating polyamorous relationships? What skills or therapy orientations have you found most helpful? Well, I'm a systems therapist, which just means that I see people in the context of the systems that they're part of. And as I was moving into my private practice and finding myself a little short on um, relationship therapy skills and also wanting relationship therapy skills that generalize to the populations that I work with, many of whom are marginalized, many of whom are polyamorous, and most of whom have sex issues of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. uh, I ended up settling with the developmental model of couples therapy, which is the Bader Pearson model. Uh, you can find them at the couplesinstitute.com. And they're my mentors now. I've been working with them probably since 2014 or 15. And it's just a brilliant model because instead of saying um, attachment theory is the only theory or differentiation theory is the only theory or behaviorism and what we can actually observe is the only way to go, um, it says, gee, all of this is important. So there's, there are attachment things, there are differentiation things, there are neuroscience things, and all of that is wrapped together. And that's so in alignment with the way that I think and have always thought, you know, ever since way back in the day when I, my first career was as a midwife, uh, I, I just think the more tools, the better, you know, the more you've gotten your toolkit, the more chance of success because it's a diverse world. So uh, I was so happy to kind of come home and settle into this model that is inclusive and that doesn't marginalize any group or any therapy model. Uh, and also really put some effort into figuring out when is which thing applicable you know, what is an attachment related issue and what is a differentiation related issue so that we can actually intervene in ways that are relevant. And then how does all of this incredible development in neuroscience fold in and inform what we do? It makes it complicated. You know, my book is big uh, because it's complicated, but it also makes it nuanced enough to make sense to me and to actually make a difference in people's lives. The other thing is it it works, something about it works for everyone that I've worked with. So, uh, you know, not that everybody can meet all of their goals necessarily, or, you know, that I'm the perfect clinician, but it's got more to offer for a more broadly diverse range of situations. Mm -hmm. So a high conflict couple, I can work with that. Um, a conflict averse, uh, group or couple, I can work with that more than two people. I can work with that. 
there just aren't the kind of limitations. You know, a lot of therapy, uh, couples therapy leaders have come out and said polyamory can't work. And, you know, so they lost me at go because that's not only is it not true, just abundantly to me, obviously not true, but also it's not helpful to me to, to say um, there's a whole group of people that this therapy model simply doesn't apply to. Then I'm like, well, I don't need your therapy model. Uh, so, yeah. It's interesting to, yeah, to, I, I've had a very similar experience working in the Bay area with a um, quite diverse queer community and, you know, and, and, and polyamorous community and folks coming to my office and requesting support and the exact skills that I was offering specifically Gottman. And they are some of the experts that have come out and said that we recommend that relationships have two folks in them, which is why I personally pull from DBT a lot, which teaches us a lot about those um, non-judgmental and expansive definitions to describe the facts as they are and not judge them and notice preferences and all of that. So it's interesting to hear um, the way that people are um, using the skills, even before the research catches up with us. Sometimes we, on the Therapy for Real Life podcast, we try as much as possible to translate the, the research into self-care strategies, but sometimes we're working with uh, smaller sets of data um, until that body of research grows. Yes, waiting for research to inform our practice has a real downside. <laughs> That's a whole That's right, right. other conversation. Okay. You know, who funded that research and, you know, what were they studying and how effectively did they actually sample for that? And is it relevant to actual regular people? Mm -hmm. I think Gottman and EFT both have a lot of research that focuses on couples who are not particularly high conflict. Mm -hmm. And so what are you going to do with the couple or the group that has a lot of conflict and some great big differences and they're not peaceable about it? Mm -hmm. Those people also need help and deserve help. And it's not, it's just not helpful to say our couples therapy model can serve everybody, but then not study a group like that. And then it's just like, well, then you're a bad client. What, like what? That's, that's not going to work for me. It's not reality-based. It really isn't. Yeah. Well, how would you How would you, how would you get started? What, and what skills would you offer? That's a really great question. The first thing that I do with everybody, but particularly people who are highly distressed, is uh, help each person involved to figure out what it is that they want for themselves. And this is a deceptively simple or deceptively difficult, depending on how you look at it, um, thing that is a, a critical component to the early stage of work together. Uh, and personal transformation. Uh, if you're doing your own self-help project, it's equally or more so relevant. So typically somebody who comes in for therapy with a partner or partners um, would start out by complaining about their partner, because if only my partner would do this set or the other thing differently, the problem would be solved, right? But the problem with that perspective is that I can't change your partner and you can't change your partner. 
the only person who can change your partner is your partner. And your partner will have to make their own decision about their own personal change. So what I'm interested in asking you and everybody is what would you like for yourself? How are you showing up when things are not going well? And how would you show up differently that would be more in alignment with your values or that would feel better to you? You would feel better about yourself and maybe also about your relationship at the end of the day. So there's a pivot that has to happen usually right at the early stage away from looking at what your partner's naughty behavior might be to looking at where you yourself want to get because it's much easier to change yourself than it is to change someone else first Mm -hmm. of all and it's also much easier to inspire change in someone else through your own change than it is to lecture somebody into making a personal change like that just never worked Mm -hmm. so So leading by example is a much better strategy. And also, by the way, if you're trying to change your partner, and of course you can't, then your entire locus of control for your own happiness is outside of yourself. So you're just kind of sitting around hoping for the best uh, and feeling more and more disappointed and more and more angry about it and resentful as your partner continues to disappoint you and doesn't change. And all of those moments, change takes a while, right? So all of those moments where there might be early bits of change going on for your partner or partners, you are not happy. And what I want for you is for you to be happy, effective ASAP. Like, let's get it moving here for you Mm. and get your eyes off of all of the choices and decisions that your partner is making. And get as much happiness going on for yourself as possible through a variety of different strategies. Um, but the first one really is get, get in your lane. Mm-hmm. Um, Using they- those healthy I statements and stating point of view. And I can't imagine many folks get perfectly synced up that first conversation or session of, I want this. Oh, me too. I want the exact, you know, same compatible thing. You, you mentioned a lot of, uh, folks are in polymonogamous relationships and quite happily navigating their compatibility. And meanwhile, some folks are not and they're coming to therapy for support. And so sometimes when they state their point of view, it's seemingly uh, incompatible. I want to be in a mo- monogamous relationship. I want to be in a polyamorous relationship. How do you, how do you find nuance in that kind of conversation? Yeah. Well, first of all, I would get more fine grained with the question of what do you want for yourself? So in a broad sense, one person wants monogamy and one person wants polyamory, but really what is it about monogamy that you want for yourself? Uh, What is it about what you perceive as a monogamous relationship? Like what are the qualities of a relationship that works? Let's leave the big descriptor, monogamy, polyamory, off and start talking about the qualities of a relationship that would be meaningful to you. And then we're more likely to get some overlap because interestingly enough, the stuff that we think of as being attached to monogamy can actually be found in polyamorous relationships. And the things that we think of as being attached to polyamory can also be found in monogamous relationships. Mm -hmm. So we can mix it up a little bit and get out of the gridlock by um, not using the the broad definition kind of words incorrectly and instead defining our terms. Mm -hmm. 
And I also think that it's important to get even more fine grained than that for in some situations and ask about when you and your partner are in a stressful discussion, you're in a conflict, how are you showing up now? And how do you wish you were showing up? And there we'll get some goals that are extremely relevant in the very first session. So there are ways that we can show up under stress and tension that don't help. And there are ways that we can show up under stress and tension that do help. It's not that easy to get from the former to the latter, but it is possible. And that's where neuroscience comes in. We've learned so much about self-regulation and co-regulation and how we can actually get grounded under stressful circumstances. We can learn from that and start applying that in our toughest, most stressful moments. And so those high conflict clients who are extremely distressed Mm -hmm. can get a lot of relief by learning some things about neuroscience and starting to apply them. And that's going to be more important probably than starting right out with a discussion about, do you want a monogamous relationship or do you want a polyamorous relationship? I love that. And you give some really good, helpful listicles of ways that people can soothe themselves quickly in a conversation. And, and that self-soothing skill is part of that broader skill set that I hear you recommending time and time again in the book of slowing down. If you think you're jumping to conclusions of yes, no, should we, shouldn't we slow down, get very mindful to describe those details. And I'd love to hear some examples if you have any of times that you've worked with folks to slow down and what have, what have they figured out um, in that, 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 uh, response time rather than their most immediate reaction and what they thought they had concluded or decided in that moment versus slowing down? What, ha- what do you see people getting from that experience of slowing down? It's such a beautiful question. I love the, um, the way that you put that. Let's see if I can do it justice. The um, slowing down is part of every tough conversation including the ones that I have and my kitchen table. Um, We have to slow down and the sort of panic reactivity part of our brain tells us to speed up and also tells us to self-protect. So don't reveal too much. Don't let yourself get vulnerable. And so we have a lot of mechanisms to speed us up, hop over the stressful point, pretend it wasn't there and move on. And the problem there is when we're not real in the moment and vulnerable with one another, we're also not connecting and we're probably doing battle and creating some harm in, in the mix. So slowing down is part of every stressful conversation. And when we're talking about a big disagreement or a conceptual disagreement, like I want to open the relationship and my partner doesn't, for instance, which is a common one. I think the first thing that you get from slowing down is you get to focus on what you're experiencing in the moment rather than hopping over it and trying to run to a decision. There's a sort of a lot of tension about get us decided so that we can get this settled and tie it up with a bow and get emotional relief. That's the theory. But you can't go from like one person at A and one person at Z uh, in a gridlock 
to relief and a decision made any way other than breaking up. So mm -hmm. that's obviously not the goal or these people wouldn't be in my office to begin with. That's so, what rounding up looks like every time you jump ahead. That's where that, if you really want certainty breaking up, that's a great way to do that. And that's so exactly you, right. Yeah. If certainty is the only way to calm down, then mm -hmm. your choices are way too limited. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a way to be undecided and to let yourself be undecided. But for me to let myself be undecided means that I have to tolerate a lot of uncertainty. I don't know what my future will be. But the beauty of that uncertainty is I also don't know that my future involves a breakup. I fear that it will, but I don't know that it will. Whereas if I hasten to settle this thing, it certainly will. Mm -hmm. So being able to tolerate discomfort and uncertainty is a really, really important skill it involves a huge amount of regulation. And it's a big skill for therapists too, to help clients with this kind of a disagreement means holding tension, a lot of tension in the room and helping the clients not race to a decision, but instead to be in the moment, describing their experience, describing what they dream of, what they're afraid of, what it means to them, what are the aspects of their relationship currently that are valuable to them, that are worrisome to them, that they don't like? What do they imagine they'd like to build in their relationship? And could how could they build that in any kind of relationship? And I want both partners in a disagreement like this to really think about how they could get what they most want in relationships. Hmm from any kind of relationship so that we can just break the tension on that. Are we going to polyamory or are we going to monogamy question? And instead really wonder how much can we build together that's valuable to both of us. Mm -hmm. And then we'll see, you know, once you get building then and moving forward in a positive direction, then you can start looking around and saying, well, mm, this still feels kind of empty to me for one reason or another, or, gosh, this relationship has so much of what I want that this, the small amount of um, compromise that I would do to accommodate my partner is nothing because I feel safe and secure and connected and it feels good. Mm -hmm. And, and of course that describes whether this is a, a client that moves toward polyamory or moves toward monogamy, it doesn't matter. The question just is, how much happiness can you build for yourself in the relationship that you have? And then you can make a much smarter decision about what you want to do with that relationship than when you're in a panic state because you're afraid that your relationship is going to end and you think that the only solution is to make your partner do what you want them to do. Well, if you hold steady and if you uh, really um, master that skill, that's an ongoing process. It gives you an opportunity to participate in that differentiation process and conversation that you, that you refer to in your book. Could you share that process with listeners? Yes, absolutely. I describe differentiation as having three parts or maybe four if you count hold steady which is a foundational underlying part. So the hold steady part is the get grounded 
and manage your emotions so that you're not just reacting in the moment. And of course, for some people, it's nearly impossible to do that in a stressful conversation or in certain stressful conversations. And that's going to make it impossible to do the parts of differentiation that I'm about to describe. So the hold steady part is foundational and it's attachment based, by the way. Uh, and then differentiation, I would describe as the first part, getting in touch with your core, yourself. And from that look, internal look, what do I think, feel, desire, prefer? Just me, regardless of what anybody else might want me to think, feel, desire, prefer, right? The second part is to say that to somebody else, even if I think that they're going to disagree with me. And the third part is to hear a partner say something about what's important to them or what they think or feel or believe or desire that I don't agree with. And, you know, honey, I want to open our relationship is a terrific example of the kind of disclosure that can really rock somebody. And so when I say hold steady, I mean the kind of groundedness and non-reactivity that would cause you to respond to something like that. Oh, that's interesting. What is it about a polyamorous relationship that appeals to you? Instead of, oh my God, I can't believe you said that to me, right? Mm -hmm. Or any other kind of emotionally reactive uh, thing. And of course, we can't always avoid having an automatic emotional reaction, but we can get much more practiced at managing them so that we can, for instance, take a few deep breaths, lengthen our exhales, uh, go to the bathroom, splash water on our face, run around the block, come back, sit down, say, so my darling, what is it about polyamory that feels so important to you? <laughs> um, and with practice, you get better and better at that until, you know, hopefully you can kind of do it in the conversation. Mm -hmm. But, and I've had a lot of practice at this over, you know, 25 years, 26 years of marriage to a woman. And in a number of relationships before that, and plenty of conflict over the years and family of origin issues and all this stuff, just like everybody else, right? I've had lots of experience practicing. And still, there are times when I have to say, oh, can we take a break? And this is just too much for this moment for me. Could we talk about this in the morning? Or could we talk about this in two days when my big this thing has passed and I'm no longer yes. tapped out? Or, you know, um, this isn't the moment. And sometimes I'll say that really fast now. And it's just like a tribute to my partner that she holds steady for that because she might bring something up and I'll just say, don't have the bandwidth. Can we talk about it later? And she's just like, yes, because she trusts that I'll come back and say, let's make sure that we talk about that. I wish we had time to go through each and every one of the skills in your book. You mentioned the initiator, inquirer. Um, you give ideas for holding steady, the two chairs technique for examining and holding mixed feelings, looking at needs and wants. You have a beautiful description of the power of consideration and lots of, lots of wonderful skills that I would highly recommend to folks, whether they're interested in polyamory or just the interesting nuances of relationships. But I would like to reserve a little bit of time 
for folks who are interested in the therapy process. You know, if there are lots of times when a polyamorous relationship might be working quite well, or you've never tried it before, when should you consider therapy and what should you look for in a therapist? Hmm. Well, you could consider therapy or coaching, I would add, at any point that you feel like you would like some extra support. And I think that it's important if you're in a polyamorous relationship or that you are, if you're considering being in a polyamorous relationship, regardless of whether you are um, reluctantly considering it or ambivalently considering it or enthusiastically considering it, I still think it's important that you find a therapist who has some experience working with polyamory or at least who's willing to read my book because you have to have enough cultural competence not to do harm. So there's just a certain amount of stuff you have to know. And that's the sort of polyamory 101 portion of my book, which is brief-ish, uh, but also you just have to have it. Like you really, otherwise your client is gonna have to educate you about polyamory. And then uh, it's really important that you have good relationship therapy um, conceptualization and skills. And I think it's very possible to find a therapist that can work with polyamory who doesn't have experience working with polyamory, but they're a very good therapist and they're very good at figuring out what are the client's goals separate from what they might want themselves. And it comes naturally to them not to conflate their beliefs with, um, for instance, right and wrong. <laughs> um, and you can find that therapist. And also it's not that easy to find that therapist. So um, a shortcut is asking what kind of experience do you have working with open relationships? What's this been like for you? Um, and maybe outlining your particular challenge. For instance, we went from infidelity to considering opening our relationship. Does that feel to you like a natural progression or problematic? or one of us is interested in opening the relationship and the other is not, how might you begin to think about this? Mm -hmm. um, so that you can start to get a sense of whether what's gonna come out of this therapist's mouth is gonna make sense to you. And if it's something like, well, polyamory is your problem. If you were just monogamous, you wouldn't have a problem. That's probably not gonna be the right therapist for you. Mm -hmm. What would you say about therapist self-disclosure here? You said someone doesn't necessarily have to have personal experience in order to be a good therapist, as long as they're willing to do that cultural competency work. Are there times when it would be appropriate or would not be appropriate? Um, you know, back in grad school that they teach us that guiding question with self-disclosure, is it clinically uh, relevant, useful, and is the clinician comfortable sharing that? Is there anything different about working in the polyamorous community about self-disclosure? Well, there are certainly different thoughts about how self-disclosure fits into relationship therapy or any therapy at all. And I'll tell you my perspective. Um, you could certainly find somebody to disagree, but I, I think that Disclosure, if you're the therapist, if I'm talking to a therapist, your use of personal disclosure should always serve the client. It should never be for your own purposes. So if there's a, a way that your disclosure could serve your client, 
by all means, if you want to. Also, you're never obligated to disclose anything about your life ever. So one thing that falls into that space of personal disclosure might be helpful fairly frequently is a disclosure about sharing um, a, a marginalized status of identity. Mm-hmm. So um, if that's, and, and also I've both seen and heard of cases where that there was a shared marginalized identity and there was something about the client, the therapy or the situation that made me think, I don't think it would serve my client to disclose. So you, there's not a rule of thumb, just being in a shared marginalized group is not enough. You, it also has to be clear to you that in your best clinical judgment, it will serve. And you have to be thinking about, is there any way that I can imagine that this could actually not serve the client and could end up being unhelpful or harmful? And I think this is very important when you serve marginalized populations because they've been hurt plenty. Um, And so, you know, it's nice to be mindful and careful and do your best. And also they really deserve some safety. And so if there's a way that it could be harmful, uh, I think it's good to think about that. I'm talking to a client, I always think it's appropriate if you want to know and you're clear why you want to know, by all means, ask your therapist, whatever you want to ask them. But I don't, you got to remember, it's not required that they answer, but you will learn a lot from what they say. You'll learn a lot about their character. You'll learn a lot about how they think. You'll learn a lot about their emotional maturity from how they respond to a question about their identity or their status. And sharing that status, being part of a marginalized group, I think it'd be important to understand that um, that that confidentiality is protected for the client, but not necessarily the therapist. So the therapist has to weigh the pros and cons of sharing that information, especially when the rest of their family or relationship um, is affected by that disclosure. So there's a lot to consider. There is a lot to consider. So if a therapist chooses not to answer that question, I would definitely not come to the conclusion that they're not in the marginalized group. Mm -hmm. I would, just like I would with a client, if they just don't disclose something, there's something going on that's more complicated than you might imagine. Mm -hmm. And it's everybody's right to not disclose. And hopefully every therapist who works with marginalized populations, hopefully has really given some serious thought for how to handle um, disclosure questions, self-disclosure questions. So I just think it's part of a therapist's responsibility to be a leader in those conversations and to be, to remain grounded, not to freak out. Um, And, you know, but it's definitely kind of a test question that if you're, you know, if you've only got one therapist in your area that you think might be a fit, maybe don't torture them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> don't like, burn out your burnout prevention therapist. Is- exactly. <laughs> like, well, let's stay in their comfy wheelhouse um, <laughs> and just make sure it feels right and good to you. Yeah, I like that that advice that you've given all the way through of that I statement point of view. So if I'm in this kind of situation, how would you, my therapist, help me navigate that? Keep it keeps the focus on the client. 
Well, Martha, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you about this wonderful labor of love, it seems like, this um, clinical toolkit that you've put together for therapists and their clients navigating polyamory. Any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with listeners who are thinking about the structure of their relationship, consent, and how to get in touch with what will work best for them in their relationship? Hmm. Well, I think a very important takeaway is that if you're thinking about opening your relationship and you haven't seen a workable polyamorous relationship, I just want you to know that they exist. It doesn't work for everybody. Monogamy doesn't work for everybody. Relationship period doesn't work for everybody, but uh, it does exist in nature in a very beautiful workable form. So don't believe the cultural idea that it can't work or it can't last. That's just not the case. So that's, that's one big takeaway I'd like to give people. And then also, if you can figure out how you want to be showing up in tough conversations, no matter what you're, no matter who you're talking to, it might be your mother or your coworker or your partner or your partner's lover, whoever it is, how do you want to be showing up in those tough conversations? There's plenty of work that all of us can do right there and it will make your life happier. So that work is work that is worth the time and energy to do it. And if I could recommend one self-help project for everybody, it would be show up better in a tough conversation because it leads directly to personal happiness and peace. So um, I think that's my other takeaway that applies to everybody. I love that. Martha Kalpi, thank you so much for the, the work that you shared with us today. Appreciate what you do. You too. Thank you for your lovely interview. What a pleasure. Therapy for Real Life also offers workplace workshops to help your team buffer against the stresses of daily life. Therapy for Life is known for the Burnout Prevention Hackathon, which teaches your team self-care strategies that are backed by research to help you interrupt burnout and promote self-care. Now that work has moved primarily to virtual and work from home, Therapy for Real Life has adapted the Burnout Prevention Hackathon for the online community. Get in touch to discuss your interest in stress management, burnout prevention, relationship building, and other self-care workshops, and how to adapt these trainings for your team's needs. 